Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. As usual, you can find our episodes on YouTube, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify or Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, you pick it, we're there. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Panjway Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Panjway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to thepanjoypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. This week, we are speaking with another guest who was present at VSP Bellambay during the Panjoy Massacre. Some details and aspects of this episode may differ from those presented in our previous episodes discussing this event. As it was then, the thoughts and opinions offered by our guests are their own, and the Panjoy Podcast does not condone or promote either version of events as right or wrong. We are simply allowing the individuals that were present to tell their story from their point of view. With that said, please enjoy another episode of the Panjoy Podcast. All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. So how long, how, how long you guys had this podcast going, mind me asking? Uh, we started we started recording episodes, I think, in October of 2020. Oh, nice. And we, but we started yeah. releasing episodes in January of 2021. Cool. So we kind of just passed our one-year mark of actually uh, releasing episodes. Yeah. Nice. Congratulations. Looks like it's building as you guys are going, which is what I think anybody in this uh, business wants, right? Yeah, I mean, we were we were super lucky, um, and you know, yeah. Luke works actually in the podcast industry, so he can speak oh, to cool. it. But uh, we we had kind of a built in audience to start, so when we we didn't have to build as much as a lot of podcasts do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, right out the gate, we were doing really really well, uh, and then we got pretty lucky. Uh, just it just picked up steam along the way. We had some media appearances right around the fall of Afghanistan that kind of helped. Jumps and stuff up, which is a terrible reason to succeed. Um, (laughs) But it was, you know, it definitely got some exposure out there. So we're we're very lucky. Yeah. And you said you found out about some uh, one of your one of your soldiers sent sent you to us, right? Yeah, another. And and I'm going to do my best not to use any names when we go through this day. But yeah, yeah, another my another one of my soldiers sent me the podcast and told me to check it out because he was a little concerned of what allegations were being made. (laughs) But yeah. uh, and it just kind of sparked one thing to the next. And, and honestly, it kind of made me dig into something I've been burying for a long time that maybe I should probably, you know, for the sake of the guys that were underneath me to some degree, they, they deserve some answers to some things, I think. Mm. Yeah, right I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're really glad that you, that you found us and that uh, we've been able to start to close the loop on this thing and, and get some more 
perspectives uh, other than one. So um, we're really appreciative. And I guess that's a good good way to transition and introduce you. Sure. Um, we are sitting here with uh, Dave Godwin. Uh, you'd prefer Dave or David? I go by Dave. Usually my mother only calls me David when I'm in trouble. All right. We'll, we'll, stick, we'll stay away from David then. Yeah. <laughs> if we say David, you know you need to slow yeah. down. Uh, <laughs> there you go. I like the cue. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Uh, Dave Godwin, uh, was a, you were a squad leader or team leader? Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. So I really a squad leader okay. at the, at the end of it. Yeah. Uh, at VSP, uh, Bell and by, um, in 2012. So we, we've, we've previously had done three episodes about, uh, the, the Panjway massacre and, uh, Dave reached out to us and wanted to, to talk about his side of the story and what he saw, um, and as one of the uh, one of the NCOs that you know lived you know very close proximity to Bobby Bales, uh, we think he has some some really good insights and uh, maybe some uh, some more perspective and context than we were able to get in the first few episodes. So, uh, Dave, kind of the way we start these things is we start kind of with your background. So, why you joined the army, why you chose the infantry, and a little bit of your uh, deployment or military experience leading up to the Panjway deployment. Sure. Uh, so, I, I grew up on the western slope of Colorado. Um, you know, growing up, I was really into military police. That's kind of why I was on and off every Halloween as a kid. My mother could show you lots of pictures, but, uh, <laughs> you know, got older and in school and stuff and, and kind of lost that lost sight of that. Um, I was in high school, actually, that wasn't doing the greatest. Decided I needed a little change in life and kind of rekindled that, that military career aspirations. Um, my parents, mainly my mom, had no desire for me to go to the military, especially at that point, because it's graduating in 2006. So it's kind of a pretty big height of the war. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so I, I begged and pleaded for her to sign me before I was 18. You know, she she wouldn't do it. She actually took me uh, to there was that Jake Gyllenhaal movie where he was a sniper. Um, I the name <laughs> the movie. Uh, Jarhead. Jarhead, yeah. Wow. So she's she's like she's like, hey, I'm gonna take you to this movie, you know. And, and her, my dad, and I'm like, okay, I'm 17 years old. This is kind of weird. I've mm-hmm. been to the movies with my parents in a long time, but we go watch the movie and we get done. And she's, I think it was more of like a, hey, this is see this this is a bad thing you're gonna do. And it, it's not that you know she doesn't value. She just didn't want her son to leave and and go mm-hmm. go to the war. Right. Um. But I think it was just a few days after my 18th birthday, I signed up and shipped out about three months later. My mom tried a similar tactic when I was like 10 and I was thumping my chest. Actually, probably it was probably after a 9-11 and I was like, I'm ready to go to war. Of course, you know, I was in middle school. And yeah. uh, and so she's like, okay, I was like, I'm going to show you Saving Private Ryan and maybe that will come. <laughs> you know? And you know, so I watched Saving Private Ryan by myself as like a 9 or 10 year old. So that's actually been before 9-11, sorry. But um, yeah. You know, it didn't work. I was definitely out, like, reenacting D-Day in, in the... Yeah, you're probably amped at that point. You're like, <laughs> yeah. yes, thanks, Mom. Yeah, you yeah. get me. That's, That's right. A, it's a fine line, like, using war movies to try to discourage somebody. I mean, depending yeah. on the person's mindset, you know. Yeah. It's like, it's like it might actually turn them the other way. So. Yeah, that definitely. I was just like, yes, I'm ready. Let's go sit me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, why the infantry instead of military police? Uh, you know... Um, I think like many other young men my age, you just wanted to go be on the front lines, you know, mm-hmm. and I was, and I was an idiot and I didn't think ahead of beyond my 18th birthday or beyond my tour. I was thinking, you know, I'm going to go fight for America and be on the front lines and, you know, kind of that whole song and dance like many other guys like me do. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, you know, I, that was 10 years ago. No, I was, when I signed up was beyond that. Excuse me. But yeah. Now I'm like, I should have. Should have done something else and some desk job or something. You know, I could have let out of the military with <laughs> so, a nice career. Something with transferable skills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I joined pretty young too. I was I was nineteen. Um, I graduated high school in '07, so I spent about a year and a half dicking around, filling out of college. You know, before I finally joined. Um, and like when I look back on it, it's like I kind of wish I would have joined a little bit later in life, but I don't think I ever would have joined yeah. later in life. You know. It was a, it was a fine balance for me. It's like if I had joined right out of high school, I would have been like super fit, super uh, motivated. I'd have been uh, like mainlining the Kool-Aid if I had oh, yeah. in high school. Yeah. But I also, I just didn't have the maturity. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think 25 was a good age for me to join personally, but I mean, it really is like 23 or 24 would probably be a good age to actually join the military. Like 25, yeah, you know, and maybe a very mature 21 year old. But when you're 17, 18, 19, you don't fucking know what you're doing. Like, you don't understand what you're getting into. And then you get into it and you don't realize that every job has its things that suck. And mm-hmm. you get disenfranchised and delusioned and not a... I think yeah. you should have, like, a real-world job before you join the military. Yeah. Like, just so you understand, like, because people love to bitch in the military. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. We all are. Um, mm-hmm. but like a lot of people will bitch and be like, Oh, I can't believe he told me to do this. And like, you <laughs> have to understand, like if you get a job in the real world, they're going to tell you to do things you don't want to do. Also, yeah. the difference there is you can quit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tell everybody too, like, you know, when I joined, you know, the military didn't need Dave Godwin, Dave Godwin needed the military mm-hmm. and That's it was kind point. of speaking of that maturity level. I think, uh, it's kind of what guided me the proper way to ultimately grew up a bit so yeah that's a good way of, of framing it yeah that's a it really is. good way of framing it because it's, it's easy to get the other way it like, is when yeah. i when i started flying i definitely fell victim to that i was like i can't believe they treat us pilots like crap it's like <laughs> yeah they could replace me pretty quick there's about eight hundred thousand people who'd gladly take my seat so yeah and speaking of immaturity and young age so i, I deployed my first deployment i was uh 20 I freshly minted 20. I turned 21 in Iraq. Didn't even get to celebrate turning 21 properly until like nine months later. So uh, you joined at a young age too. So you know, run us through your your first couple of combat deployments. Well, I started off with uh, shipping out in August of 2006 and made my way through infantry school and OSET and all that. And then immediately from there, I went to airborne school, which is mm-hmm. right down the road. And did that and um, got done with all that by about end of January. They sent me out to second ID up in Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, while I was up there, I was in processing into the base. And uh, again, being an immature 18 year old, I'm, I'm, I'm processing, in processing into the base and they're just standing up fifth brigade. It's another striker brigade up there. While I'm doing so, um, a bus comes by and they ask like, hey, who wants to go to Iraq like real soon? Like mm. in the next couple of months. And so a handful of us like, yeah, 18, I'm, I'm ready. You know, I'm an <laughs> infantry airborne guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so some of my friends who I went through the training with and basic, they all went to 5th Brigade. Um, I ended up going to 3rd Brigade with a handful of guys. Um, and I was in Iraq in 06, or excuse me, 07. is was 07 by then in, I believe it was March, March or April. Made it over there. My unit had already deployed. They were already over there for quite a while. Um, they made the push from Mosul down to Baghdad, and I met him in Baghdad. Mm. So, what was that deployment like? With pretty pretty wild times. Yeah, it was it was kind of the height of the surge. 
um, a lot of counterinsurgency stuff, I, I immediately went right into the uh, battalion scout section. Um, and one of my first few days, you know, because you're still, you're still in process in the country and whatnot, and it wasn't until probably a week or more later of actually in processing in the country that I actually linked up with the unit I was with. Um, I remember pretty vividly, it was within the first couple of days, where uh, our, our, our unit would do, or our, the battalion reconnaissance section for 3rd Brigade, 2nd ID, they do a lot of uh, night missions. That's pretty much all we ran in Baghdad was night missions. And we were help facilitating other governmental entities with targeted raids and things like that. And uh, it's so pretty awesome. Would, you got to go straight to the scout platoon oh, man, right it, out the gate. Usually that's something you have to assess for. Yep. And, and I, and I think probably cause I had airborne that they, they saw me as an, it's just an extra level of sure. commitment I had. I don't know. Really don't also, know. You, you were 18, then you could run a 11 and a half minute mile in your sleep. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was pretty bam, 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 you know, in airborne Iraq, it was pretty quick. And, uh, I remember pretty, it was, it was within the first couple nights. Um, so we would stage on, um, either the green zone or some sort of other cop or something like that. We would go do a targeted raid, come back and drop our prisoners and go and do it again. And we'd do that throughout the night. And uh, so I'm sitting on the green zone, like scared, I can, you know, cause I'm with a bunch of hardened infantry dudes that have already been there for, I think six or seven months ahead of me. Oh, um, wow. yeah. Yeah. And I was, you know, and I was fresh, fresh meat, fresh you're, you're meat, bad yeah. luck, new guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, the, 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 the platoon start comes around and he's like, Hey, nobody wants to be the driver because we're in a striker striker unit. So he's like, nobody wants to be a driver. So you have to fight another guy and whoever loses and be the driver. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so me and this other guy, me and this other guy, you know, on the side of the green zone are going at it for a few minutes. And, and I had the upper hand in one. So I was thankfully not, the, you know, private Godwin was not the driver. Specialist, yeah. you know, so-and-so was had to remain driver. So I felt pretty good about myself at that point. But. Yeah. Did you use your modern Army combative program skills to win that yeah, fight? I use the, if I don't win this, like, it's going to be a long deployment kind of mentality, really. <laughs> it truly was, you know. That's I, 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 I knew I was fresh. I mean, I had to show my grit right at the beginning. It's kind of, right. prison, yeah. kind of prison rules, you know? Yeah. Rules, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, on the first day. It's like the, the joke, of course, in the military and the army is like, oh, the old army. But that's like old army shit right there, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, could you imagine what would happen now if a private showed up and their two stars said, duke it out with another guy? Yeah. yeah. We res- we respected the hell out of them, you know? Like, it, yeah. we just, we loved each other. It was just something we did. Nice. And there's so something to that that's been lost in the past oh, yeah. you know, 10 years. It's like, 10 years, yeah. You know, people love to, the, they're like, oh, I can't believe they treat me like crap. It's like, you, it feels like crap now, but if you just get past it, you're going to understand what it was all about. But now that people aren't getting past that point, they're not They're not earning that respect. There's no, there's no culture like that anymore. All people see is the hazing, and they don't they don't see the result and the, the necessity of a little bit of physical discomfort. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm not saying go out there and, you know, like I mean, whip there's people a, or something. There's a but... difference between like nefarious, toxic tearing down of your fellow soldier and setting kind of like a, like a, a minimal level of, of nut up that you got to get to, you know, like there's a difference between those two things. And, you know, I, I got both for sure when I was in, but it, <laughs> it was valuable, you know, in the long run, like it was a valuable thing to have to, to earn the new guy you know, stripes, if you will. 
Yeah, and ultimately later on in that deployment, I ended up becoming a driver for a period of time anyway. Like I was <laughs> yeah. told to. So, Every, you know, everybody, I mean, yeah. The glory lasted for a while, but you know, <laughs> ultimately I had to, for at least a little short period of time. Yeah. Maybe the only thing worse than being a striker driver is being a Bradley driver. Yeah, I bet. So I, I managed to dodge that bullet, thankfully. Uh, but I did then become a, a Bradley gunner, which actually was kind of fun, to be honest. Um. So anyways, that was your first deployment. Things pretty kinetic, pretty wild. And yeah. And come home. Well, I mean, for that, for as far as kinetic, you know, we definitely got in our ticks, um, not nearly as much as our line units. Cause like I said, we, we operate at night and all our line units operate during the day. And so we, ours are far less. I do remember, um, we were in contact, but we didn't, nobody knew we were in contact in the sense that we were, we did a target array and we're in this building. Yeah. And I'm looking out this window and we're Dora is like a, it's a very urban area and I'm, I'm on the second floor and you just see these, you hear the guns go off and I, it's like Star Wars. I see tracer rounds going up and down the street and it's neat. It's neither one of our units. It's, it's an American force fighting, you know, local insurgents. And we're just caught up in the middle of this firefight and like, God, I hope no, somebody knows we're here and they don't both orientate towards us. But it was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but as a private, like, you're like, this is awesome. Like, yeah, this th- is what this I is signed war. up for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, oh but, man. But yeah, it was, it was, oh. it was kinetic and yeah. Good well, that's time. an interesting dynamic. I mean, and we talked to, uh, Steph's, or actually first sergeant morgan and one of his first deployments was like that too he was in a he was in a pathfinder platoon so they didn't own any battle space they just kind of bounced around uh so when you don't own your own battle space the likelihood of regular contact happening goes way down because you know it's you're just picking your fights here and there exactly you know the battle space owners are the ones that are like oh it's just i'm full fucking tired and they're like oh great now they're gonna shoot at us because we're tired um so it's, it's, it's 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 an interesting dynamic uh, was were you battle space owners in the next deployment or was it a little bit different? Yeah, it was uh, the second deployment. The we were up in the Mukdadir, which is a little north, and we had a battle space. It was a lot more key leader engagements. It was okay, far less dramatic than the first tour. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty not kinetic. Um, yeah. We we definitely got rocketed more and stuff like that. But as far as okay. open firefights in an urban environment, it was dramatically less to non-existent. And did you patrol regularly on foot, or was it mostly mounted patrols? Or? It was mostly mounted. Yeah, we yeah. we we, you know, pick a village, go do a killer engagement, and you know, kind of do some things here and there. Did a lot of uh, like humanitarian aid, I guess. Dropped a lot of food to you know the leaders in the communities and stuff like that. Um, go rec- we help you know other units would get hit by ADs. We go help cover them and as a quick reaction force for some of the SF guys that were in close with us and things like that. But yeah. So I were, a lot less dramatic. I, my, my, uh, that's, I mean, my Iraq deployment is exactly what you just described. You know, that was around Missoula in 2009 and 10. So it was, it's crazy to think that just a year or so later, it was a completely different world there, you know? Yeah. And just and another then, part of the region, you know, yeah. or another part of the country, just different. So you guys would have been in country around the same time, right? Yeah, I think I was there in October of '09. Was when yep. I got there. Yep, and I was there through just about. It was a ten month deployment. I can't remember what the dates, but it was '09 area. I think we came back around November. Okay, oh, so we, we, yeah. we just button hooked and they overlapped just a little bit then. Nice. So on this second deployment is when you actually got to know uh, Bobby Bales, right? Yeah. So after uh, after we got back from Iraq on my first deployment. Um, 
they restructured the battalion recon section and I remained. Um, at that point, uh, I moved from just being a, um, a guy on a team to our sniper section. Um, I started training up through, the, through our sniper section. Uh, Bobby Bales became the sniper section sergeant and uh, actually deployed on our second tour, and he was my sniper section sergeant. What were your first impressions of him when you met him? You know, he <laughs> he really loved the Army. I think he saw a lot of pride in the Army, um, kind of what defined him. He was mm-hmm. older when he joined. He had life experience, not necessarily good life experience or bad. I can't speak to that. Sure. He, he definitely had a lot of life experience at that point, um, and I was still – shoot i was i was still young uh, i don't think i was even 21 yet um mm. but uh very vocal him and i did not always see eye to eye on things but he was still my superior and i listened to him and and he led okay in that sense that um he was very you know when leadership would call upon him he would he would definitely give him his 100 percent he would give us sure. 100% to it, and he would try and do it to the best of his abilities. And along the way, he would try and motivate his guys to give it to the best of their abilities. So so that deployment would have been his fourth, right? I believe so. Believe so so. your second, his fourth. Um, and were you, were you seeing any signs? Way, I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have picked up on it back then. But looking back now, do you see signs of, of like war fatigue or, or something like that? Or do you, was he still pretty much like 100% no, but there? It, but again, like, and I saw the shift when I was in from my first deployment to my last deployment, kind of just what you guys were talking about earlier of mm. what is acceptable behavior, you know, mm-hmm. and, and between my first and second deployment, it was a much, you know, the people that even the privates, the privates to include myself were much different than the privates I saw in my third deployment just through life experience. And at this sure. point, the only life experience I have is the United States Army and a deployment halfway through my other one. Right. Um, we definitely, when I say we, we didn't always see eye to eye, um, I remember us coming up for promotion and, and our, the way our battalion did it is you had to go through an initial battalion um, like board with all the first arms. It wasn't just like a promotional board, but I had to do this pre-board before I went to the promotional board and so me and this other guy um, one of my teammates we were studying our butts off and you know trying to obviously try and get promoted and we go to this pre-board and and the whole time i'm studying stuff like and and we're in country we're seeing each other every day he and i are wearing on each other and he's telling me like oh you don't study enough you're gonna we're gonna fail you're you know just really bringing me down and i'm not sure why um maybe it's because i'm opinionated i'm not sure but he was really bringing me down and so we go to this battalion board and me and the other or the other soldier and I go through it together. And as soon as I walk out the door, he's like, oh, yeah, this guy, he did way better. You, you know, I told you you didn't do good, blah, 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 and just going off on me. And I'm like, oh, okay. And come to find out, I actually placed first. And uh, I got an award from from our, uh, our, our battalion as well as I got to meet General Odierno, and who was yeah. the force comp commander at the time. And it was kind of cool. And uh, it was the weirdest thing. And he kind of quieted down. And then uh, kind of the same thing for the promotional board. He just, oh, you're, you didn't, you're not doing good enough. You need and, and maybe that was his way of like motivating me. Because honestly, the more times he said that, I was like, oh, I'll show you. 
Mm-hmm. I'll show you. I'm gonna. Right. You, I'm not doing. Hold on. I'm gonna show you. And and so we go through the board and same thing. He tells me I didn't do very good and stuff. And then I get out of it and the sergeant major and first sergeants came up like, hey, you did really awesome in front of him. I'm like, all right, I, I'm yeah. okay. Everything <laughs> is okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Hey, we, we've but, talked about this before. I mean, not not even just in the other uh, bales episodes, but he reminds us a lot of. NCOs that we've other NCOs that we've encountered, there, and yeah. there's one in particular on our deployment who was very similar, just always in your in your face, always negative, always saying, sometimes crossing the line in a very yeah. bad way. Sure. Um, but you know, you know, further on, you know, we come to find out, you know, it's his sixth deployment. He's got eight kids. Like, you know, you start to get the context behind it. Um, and you know, he went and he got help, and he's a lot better now. But, I mean, even he would say, he's like, I was so out of line. He's like, but there was also a part of me that was like, if I was the hardest thing in your guys' life, combat would be easy. Um, so I, 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 I understood that. And I think, you know, when, when that is the kind of leader that you are, it's sometimes hard to find the line. Absolutely. You know, I think I think the whole adage of iron sharpens iron, mm-hmm. I, think, I think a lot of that is dying off. And we are so worried that somebody's trying to defeat us but sometimes caring for us is really you know mm-hmm. sharpening that iron right and so mm-hmm. i and whether bob Bobby bales did that was doing that with me or not i, I don't know um yeah. i can tell you that probably because he was writing me so hard i did far better and put far more devotion into studying and, and prepping for the the both mm-hmm. promotional boards and probably led to my outcome in a good way whether it was his intent or not sure and how about his, uh, you know, what was he like on the battlefield, like out on patrol? I mean, was he, was he different person on patrol as he was back on the cop or was, you know, was it always what you saw and was what you got with Bobby? I was always what you, what you saw is what you got. He joked around a lot with us. Um, and again, like soldiers joke and sometimes it's vulgar and sometimes it's something you wouldn't say to your mother. Um, it you usually know, is. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he looked out for us in many a ways. Um, you know, like when the battalion would come down and like, I remember we got to, it's for the Super Bowl or something like that. We got to consume some, some alcohol. It was like two beers while we're in. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the two beer, uh, Super Bowl treat. I remember that. Yeah. And he, uh, I'll just say he helped us out with that too. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he, uh, he did look out for his guys um, for the most part. Now, as far as delivery goes, I, you know, I think his intentions were good in that sense. Um, delivery isn't always on par hmm. um, with it. Um, I think we're all trying to figure out how to be a leader. How, how do you lead nine different personalities in a combat zone sometimes? And it right. gets hard. Yeah. And how about his interaction with the uh, partner forces? Uh, he's almost always very professional partner forces, especially when we're helping out like uh, the SF guys and things like that. I think, sure. I think ultimately Bobby Bales probably wished he would have gone down that pathway um, in his military career. And he talked about it. He talked about going to selection and stuff like that consistently. And he, he would work out a lot. Um, mm-hmm. He would kind of go in ebbs and flows like a lot of us. I go in ebbs and flows too, but uh, sure. Lots of flows here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely, since I've been out, lots of flowing. It's very flowy. But, uh, no, he, uh, yeah, I, he, was, he was decent. Decent. Yeah. Were there ever any moments, like, especially during that previous deployment and the lead up to your Afghanistan deployment where maybe things just didn't quite sit right with you or maybe you, you observed something that, that, that just kind of didn't settle well or anything like that or was it just the business as usual for him? You know, I think it was... 
it was just business. It's just kind of what I knew of him. Yeah. Um, nothing really other than like when I talk when we about the promotional process. After yeah. that first promotional process, when he's telling me I didn't know good, like I was ready to fight him. He <laughs> ready to yeah, go blows. Sure. On the side of the base there, and, and we didn't. We 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 figured it out, but um. But again, from my first tour, from my first experience with the guys sure. I was with, that's not that's not out of that's not out of the norm for us. You know, we sure. were we we're a bunch of dudes that were, um, at know, war. At war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you you came back from from that Iraq deployment, and that would have been late two thousand nine. So there's a, there's actually a decent gap there in between that deployment and the Afghanistan deployment. What were those? What was that year year and a half like? I guess almost two years. Yeah, so uh, between the second Iraq and Afghanistan, I uh, got married. Um, we trained a lot. Uh, at that point, I was a, a team leader on a sniper team for a period of time. Actually went to sniper school in that period and got my Bravo 4. Um, had to go twice, you know. I didn't get enough of it the first time, so I had to go twice. You know? <laughs> but uh, As is tradition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, it was just normal garrison life for the most part. Did, you know. Did some training, went to air assault school at some point, um, and all that. It, at this point, it's all running together as far as sure, schools yeah. and deployments and right. when when you did what and whatnot. But yeah, yo, I'm, I'm gonna need exact dates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> gonna, gonna need that uh, DD two fourteen, you know, yeah. as evidence and uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, if I'm trying, I remember you guys deployed what in like January uh, of twenty twelve, December, December okay. of twenty eleven. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, like I said, I got married and at the time my, and my wife and I were young. I was 23 at the time, I believe. Um, so just young, still not super mature. Sure. Um, but wife's pregnant, young wife's pregnant. And, um, I'd actually tried to stay behind and for the birth of my child, it was my first child Mm -hmm. and see if I could uh, use that as my leave. I, I was, kind of see if I can finagle somewhere. I just, I don't get leave in the deployment. This will count as my leave and I'll just join up with you guys a little bit later. Uh, with manpower and staffing and stuff like that, they just couldn't make it work. So we deploy in December. Um, in January, I'm, we're obviously at BSP Bell and Bipe at that point. Um, we're with a uh, special forces unit and word gets out that, you know, my wife's about to pop and it was like, one or two days prior to her popping, she was already in the hospital because she, she was going to have a little bit early of a pregnancy. And they're like, dude, what the heck are you doing here? And I explained the situation. I'm like, hey, I'm cool. I can I can stay. I get it. You know, we don't have enough people and we're out in the middle of nowhere with yeah, pretty intense gunfighting going on. And they're like, shut up. You're getting on a plane. I'm like, Roger. <laughs> you know, and I, <laughs> I, 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 very, I appreciate it very much. And I made it back uh, about, I think it was the night before my kiddo was born. And I went straight through, straight to the hospital, was there for the birth and stayed another week and a half. And That's pretty good, wild. Man. Yeah. yeah. It was the, very, does, it doesn't uh, always work out that no, way. Yeah. It was a was good that, blessing. Was, was that your blessing. command or is that SF kind of hooking you up? I, mean, it was, uh, I think the SF guys initiated it and I think yeah. my command figured it out. But yeah. Cool. Uh, that's that's one out. thing, you know, the soft community, which I was never a part of, but they, they do a very good job of taking care of families to the best extent that they can. You know, those guys are gone half the year. So when they're home, they try to, I think they're better at maintaining or keeping the family side happy than the big army is just outside perspective looking in. And I, and I honestly didn't put up too much fight when my command said I'm going because, um, so when you asked me if I was a squad leader, team leader, kind of what my role was, 
it was really weird because when I came to Bravo Company, is what company I, w- I was sent to, um, I spent my whole time in the, in the battalion recon section. Right. And they said, hey, you're an E5. We want you to promote to E6, but you have to get some squad leader time. And I actually fought tooth and nail, and they made me go, and I didn't want it. Because right. I, I was getting ready to go to Afghanistan as a sniper team, and I'm like, this is going to be great. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. But they're like, nope, you're going to promote. We need you. We, we need to have you learn some things, so we're going to send you a Bravo company. And so at that they, time, did you already know that they had the VSP mission with uh, SF, or was that still unknown? No, by that, because it was right It was right before we deployed. So it was probably oh, okay. within, I think it was in weeks of us deploying that they sent me. Um and they, and they, I didn't really understand what the VSP mission was. And I mean, they talked about it and we kind of got a grasp. We, you know, we were painting our helmets, not wearing the, we're, we're ordering Merrill boots and right, right, right. things we'd never done before. And so I knew it was going to be kind of interesting and cool. But when they sent me to Bravo Company, Bales was, uh, excuse me, he was still the squad leader okay. in charge of the squad. And, um, they just plugged me in, but there was already team leaders there. So I just, I really had no job. Sure. And he said, uh, don't worry when we go over there, I'm going to kind of act as a platoon sergeant. You're going to kind of take over the squad and whatnot. So the whole pre up to it, like I just, I felt awkward. I, you know, I didn't have a job. Like I, I didn't feel like I, I'm coming to these guys right before deployment. They had already gone through all the pre up training together. They had built that camaraderie. Right. And I didn't want to be this new guy coming in and barking orders and saying, Hey, this is what we're doing. Furthermore, my entire military career up to this point was operating in no more than five-man teams, you know? Right. It's, it's similar to an SFU in the sense that we have a lot smaller teams. You know, a, a typical platoon in the infantry is about 40-plus individuals. Ours is about 20. Right. And so when we're doing all those missions in, in the first two deployments to Iraq. We were operating at a much smaller element. And, and coming into this, I, I knew I needed to kind of sit back and watch and kind of figure some things out and whatnot, so... And was your squad fully manned when you left? So I guess like 14, 15 guys? No, I think at the, no, we were, we were actually down a few guys. I think at, when, when I eventually took over, I was kind of in charge of about nine guys in VSP. And then the other staff sergeant was in charge of another handful of guys, about eight or nine guys. So when you got, so you had two squads there at the VSP. Uh, or two partial well, squads. I guess, I guess it was it was really like two squad. It was one squad split and a couple guys. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, handful of guys, but yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, this would have been right after uh, Bales not was demoted, but he was acting as platoon sergeant before the deployment. And then you guys got an E seven, and then he had to to move back down. So that, yeah. that happened before you got to the squad. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't part of that whole um, transition or, or whatnot, really. That was pre, like it was literally within weeks before we deployed that yeah. I, I was sent to BCO. And did he ever talk about that? Was that something that bothered him or did he just kind of roll with the punch? I think it bothered him just, I, I think he really wanted to show that like, hey, I can run guys, like I'm smart. And you know, it's almost like uh, he was more of a, he felt like it was kind of an attack on his character. Maybe, I don't know. Um, I can't speak for him, but sure, yeah, but, and we don't we don't want no, you yeah. to, but just kind of. But on the outside in. looking in, I, I think he was. I don't I want to say demoralized, but just like, man, I really want to show that I can do this kind of thing. Which is, I mean, which makes it kind of fortunate that the VSP mission was what was presented because that kind of gave him that opportunity. He'd be the basically the senior NCO of the conventional guys, right? Yeah, and he and he, <laughs> and prior to that, prior to asking other, he. he 
and this came up in the other podcast, but he kept calling me, hey, just, just a liaison. You're just like a liaison. And that's kind of your role here. I'm like, okay. I don't know what that means, but okay. <laughs> no one knows what that means. Yeah. That's why they get the title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. I can, I can shoot a rifle. I can do that. You know, we, when we're going to Afghanistan and where we're going, I know it's going to be intense, so we'll figure it out on the ground, I guess. Right. Did you ever get a chance to use any, uh, like, any of your sniper training while you were there? Because, I mean, it seems like a decent – I mean, Bellamy is kind of tucked in, you know, surrounded on all sides. It seems like you get on top of a roof, you might be able to actually do something. You know, we asked and asked and they had the they had the equipment. And um, so my – once we got there, I, I, I did kind of uh, get into more of a leadership role over some people. And, you know, like – I don't know what what – kind of positions you guys held in the military. But once you get into a leadership role, you, you know, every every time you go up, you get a, a little bit higher of a view of how things operate. And and when you're private, you're not always privy to other information or how things are running behind closed doors. So when we got there, one, I, you know, I asked Bales over and over, but I don't think he wanted me to because he wanted me to focus more on running running individuals on, on foot missions and things like that, on dismounted missions. Um, but also, too, the – the SF dudes, I think, were a little reluctant to provide that equipment to some degree because they just they didn't know us. They didn't know how we we're going to operate. And it's this sure. whole, like, I don't know, it's this whole two different entities coming together and feeling each other out and, like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. You know, kind of this whole right. weird dynamic. So it, it, a, after a while, um, they did bust out the M24s. And uh, I had one for, like, a couple of days. And then – they decided that it's not i didn't need to use it so hmm. that was that hmm. that's a bummer <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i know I, it's, it's like this is perfect it's what i've been trained up for my whole you know whole right career. i mean okay i mean yeah. we had we had snipers um we had sniper sni- section guys uh and we were at spurwingar so i'm sure you saw the the giant hill when you drove in or whatever just a couple miles to the east um, and we put we parked them up on the hill, but they were never able to do anything with their systems. And uh, but I mean, only one of them had ever been to sniper school, gotcha. so they they didn't really have the the training. But um, you know, from up there, they could see you know well, kilometer in every direction. Yeah, and on, on my second tour, we deployed a lot. You know, fleece key leader engagements and stuff like that. You know, uh, like when I talk about General Odierno, he was there doing like uh, he was visiting a little market or whatnot, someplace that was really um, inundated with insurgents for a period of time and then got cleaned up. And so he was going through to just see see the progress that had been made. And, and they deployed us about a day before we went and sat up in this big high rise and uh, a couple different sniper teams. And we overlooked the whole area where he was, you know, assessing. And I was like, that's perfect. That's, you know, it, people watch movies and they think a sniper is just some guy on a trigger. It's 90% of your job is behind an optic reporting up information so you can get your friends there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. So what was the patrol what was patrolling like out of Belam uh VSP Bombay? Were was it a lot of day patrols? I know you um Brandon and James said you did a couple 36-hour missions. Mm-hmm. You know, what what was just kind of the normal tempo like? Um, it was it that when it ebbs and flows of how often we go out. Um, we'd usually take vehicles and and send guys on foot. More often than not, um, the regular infantry guys would be mounted on the vehicles, running the guns and things like that. And the SF guys and whatnot would be on foot. Um, but then yeah, we would, you know, if we we had suspected 
IED or ammunitions in the area, we go and, and tackle that problem, or we go occupy an area that we known to uh, kind of be a, a hot point for engagements on us for, for ticks. And we would it's more of a show of force in many ways, um, show that we're here, trying to build that relationship with the community of like this is something more than what you have. You know, this is, we can offer something more than the Taliban, and we're not going to really ask anything of you other than to be supportive. Hmm. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I, I would say we got. I, more we definitely got in contact more on our base than we did out on foot yeah and do you think do you think that was because the base was such an easy target or do you think that the composition of your patrols was such that they didn't want to mess with you why do you think that that was yeah probably all the above you know when uh when you're on a base you can't move you're you're kind of isolated where you know the infantry's role is to shoot move and communicate so when you're out and about I don't think they really wanted the infantry maneuvering on them as, or SF or whoever. They they don't really care who you are. They see American uniform and they'll shoot no matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they were, yeah, I think I think it's just the whole maneuvering element. They didn't want to be overtaken. So they they get in real quick engagements at our base more often than not and be able to skirt it away. And so they could get real close too because you had, you had no white space. I mean, you were. Yeah, you guys were literally built into the village. Yeah. It was kind of, yeah. yeah, it was, it was neat. It was. You know, if you were just a layman person driving down the road, you'd have no idea really that that was even a, a military installation unless you saw some guards on the roof or something like that. Yeah, and that you know, when I was looking at the pictures of the VSP, it's in, it's incredible. I mean, there's there's no indication outside of what's there. Um, the front gate isn't even really a gate. I mean, it's, there's no big steel gate. There's no barricades, yeah. nothing. Um if you knew it was there, it was obvious. But if you didn't know, I mean, we walked by it, never even knew it was there. Yeah. You know, we did missions just down the road from Bell and By a few times. And we get like, yeah, there's a SF base over there. I was like, where? <laughs> 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 I just see a village. Yeah. Yeah. And it, in, coming from two different deployments of where it's um, regular army base where you do have the, the fortified gates and stuff like that. It's very controlled and stuff like that. Being on VSP bound by, I definitely got a lot less sleep because it's going against everything I've ever known as an infantryman of like, build your fortress up. Now I'm being guarded by a two by four and some concertina wire. You know, it's like, <laughs> just waiting for that, yeah. that a V bid to come barreling through the gate one day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't know if I'd like that either. <laughs> and, and your primary security was Afghan. So, yeah. So the, the Afghan base was connected to ours it was kind of one big compound thing and just split off by a wall but they were closer to uh the road in front or whatnot that you'd have to come through so mm. <clears throat> so we uh, nightly we'd have a, a afghan guard on their roof and the american guard in ours overlooking things yeah yep. so and uh you guys took a lot of contact i know from in that base i mean is there a few times where you, they tried to really push your shit in or was it just kind of sporadic i mean it was pretty sporadic. It wasn't yeah. uh, not much true movement on us. But I mean, at the same time, not only we talk about the maneuvering element, the SF guys definitely have a lot more dedicated assets to them, which was something I hadn't experienced until then. You know, we had um, not only the Green Berets, but we had other entities attached to us too that, you know, air support was on station almost immediately. And it was, man, it was it was fun. I had a blast. I, it, was, it was awesome to see how to properly utilize resources to, to get them at, you know, a specific situation really quick. 
Yeah. I mean, I could imagine that like for your junior guys, I'm sure in the back of your head, your whole time you're thinking, this ain't what it really, <laughs> this no. ain't what it's really like, boys. Like, <laughs> no. you know, when you, when you do a real infantry deployment, this ain't, this ain't it. You're getting you get the highlight reel, like basically. Yeah. And, and you know, like my first, especially my first deployment, you know, I was being a private, you're like, we, we were doing 10 to 15 hour operations at night. And then I'd come back and I'd have to pull an hour or two of gate guard. Yeah. I'd have to figure out, I'd have to study in there at some point to learn all the different weaponry and things like that and my duties. I remember one time my first deployment, I'm watching the gate and we had just run an operation and I'm doing the whole, I'm awake, but I'm not really like my eyes are, I'm, I'm swaying back and forth standing there. And I, I feel like it was half a second. I close my eyes and I open them up and my platoon sergeant is standing across away from me in front of my face <laughs> looking at me. <laughs> and I am like, I just knew I'm like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. He looked at me, didn't say a word. Walked into the hooch. Not even like 30 seconds later, my like two, a squad leader and team or two team leaders come out and they are just hooped and hollering. I spend the next hour <laughs> in the middle of Iraq figuring oh. out what Iraqi sand tastes like, you know, and it is, they are scuffed. But, but, but again, like I got done with that. And as much as much guff as they gave me during it and they're, they're telling me, you know, this is why you need to be the free buddies. And they're, they're pushing me through it all. And at the end of it, it was like, yeah, no harm, no foul. Like, like no, no, nothing. We're good. And now I, what they would do is they just look at you, make you sign your article 15 and ruin your career. Right. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> exactly. And I've had plenty of experiences in my, in my army career where I'm like, I could have gotten away more trouble than I actually did, but somebody's looking out for me. And I appreciated that. And it was a, uh, I'd rather, I'd rather get hurt, not hurt, but I'd rather feel some uncomfort physically than financially or anything right. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I don't know. It's it, it's a, it's a weird transition that we've made towards. We would rather ruin people's lives than make them physically uncomfortable, and that that's a, that's very odd to me. Um, when, when you, especially when you phrase it like that, it's like you did a small minor thing wrong. So instead of just scuffing you up for it, I'm going to make you remember that for the rest of your life. When you can't get promoted, you can't go to selection, you can't make E6. Like I'm just going to ruin your life, and I'm going to take money away from you and give you extra work. Whereas I was like, please just smoke me smoke for an the hour. Shit out of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Iron sharpening iron. That's all it is. Iron sharpening right. iron. Right. Um, did you notice with uh with Bales as you know, you're going through the you're doing these missions, you're not getting shot at as much outside the wire, you're getting shot at a lot inside the wire. Um, was he getting frustrated with Yeah. With... I, I, I think that he wanted more uh, more an aggressive stance on how we're conducting our operations. Um, being that this war was what, almost two decades, you know, it was, a, it was a long war. Like we were trying to figure out as a country how to best navigate this. Um, and utilizing the best minds of our country, um, we decided that uh, trying to build up the community and have them take over is, is probably the best approach. And I, I don't know, I think he wanted more of a, that typical infantry mm-hmm dominate and and be done with the situation it's frustrating i mean it's frustrating with everybody when when you're getting shot at almost daily um because it it was pretty it was intense in the sense that it was constant you know not not that they were overtaking the base or anything like that but it was constant troops in contact at that base in some fashion or another um so how do you make that stop 
how do you, and as a leader, how do you prevent your guys from getting hurt? And then not only that, but going out and saying, hey, look, we got to build this community up. Well, can they, can they tell us where the Taliban is so we can make them stop shooting at us? You know, so. Well, and what's interesting about that to me is that that's, that's an SF mission. That is, we're going to embed with the locals. We're going to develop their trust. We're going to, you know, turn them against, you know, our common enemy. And it, it's a slow grind. It doesn't happen overnight. It can be kinetic, but it's usually not. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know. Not an infantry mission. Right. It's not yeah. an infantry mission. A kilometer down the road, there's Zangabad. And there's guys from 2ID that are going out and getting shot at every single day. And they're maneuvering. And they're doing raids. And they're doing all that stuff. So I imagine, like there's this great surge of like pride and like anticipation, like we're going to work with that stuff. And then you get out there and like your conventional guys are, are hitting more targets than you are. I can, I can understand that frustration. Um, I mean, even though you still get the, you know, grow your beard out and you know, right. getting the shiny objects, you get the shiny objects, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. You get the mini guns, you're getting to, yeah. you know, fighting your flip flops and PT shorts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And I, yeah. <laughs> And I, th- I, I think I think that's every every infantryman's dream is to to fly in some flip flops. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> actually, absolutely. I have an anecdote. The the one of like two times that they actually hit Sparwingar um, is I intentionally didn't put on my PT shoes <laughs> because I wanted to say I fought in flip flops. So that's I started right. getting my throw my kid on, I was getting my helmet together, and I looked down and I was like, you know what? flip-flops so <laughs> we're, my, we're my flip-flops outside and got on the guard tower and started laying waste just so i could was say that it. the time that the sergeant major walked into that guard tower and saw you in flip-flops and told you to get out of his guard tower <laughs> no at the same time no this is a different this was the when third platoon was getting fucked up on the oh, ground okay. Okay. yeah um i don't remember I, you know i totally forgotten about that until you mentioned that that fucker little piece of shit <laughs> a little short overcompensating fuck but anyways that's a different story uh yeah, anyways. Um, so, yeah, you know, I would imagine Bales' leadership is kind of getting frustrated with what maybe he doesn't think that he's able to, like, do his mission to the best of his ability. And so th- did you ever start to see uh, things kind of kick off in his head? And, you know, could you ever get a sense of where he was at? Or um, I don't know if I could ever – obviously, I can't ever really get a sense of where he was at. But uh, Yeah, but from, I mean, sure. from your perspective, just kind of like seeing him as a person, you know. Yeah, you know, I he he was very vocal, like to the point where it was comical sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had a weird way of trying to motivate his guys, and I think he mm-hmm. tried to figure out constantly how to motivate his guys, and a lot of it was just unheard because it was it was irrational sometimes. Um, obviously, there was the incident in the jingle truck where he started beating up on the delivery, and everybody's like, "What the heck is going on? This guy is helping us. Like, why? Like, there's no need for for what is transpiring here." Mm-hmm. Um, Would you consider that the first kind of indication that there was something not completely right? Probably, yeah. Um, probably. Um, if I look back now and I, I look at the the words that he used or the comments that he'd make and stuff like that, I can definitely piece it together now. Sure. As a 22 sure. year old guy that has nothing but army experience and two combat deployments, I was not putting two and two together at that point. Um, and you're yeah. in the moment too. Like it's, yeah. you don't, you don't see things clearly as they're happening always. Right. Yeah. And, and I think he and I had different views on the military and what the military is used for and stuff like this. Like I, I still have this, romantic 
idea of the military as this World War II, like we're this good force, we're trying to go help an oppressed country. And and that's that's seriously what I viewed it as is Afghans is oppressed by the Taliban. They're controlling the Taliban and our job is to go help these people. And I and I carried that with me. And I think that sometimes he was more of the, I want to be the grit, the tough grit action guy and, and show my grit and show how awesome I am. And I don't know. I, we just we just had different outlooks on things. Um, sure. But we couldn't. Again, being 23 years old and being in a leadership position, how do you, you know, try and help facilitate your leader's success? Because ultimately, you're trying to help facilitate his success while you're facilitating the success of your guys below you and showing that there's a unified front to your guys. Um, I probably didn't handle it the best or, or do the best at 23 years old, but you live and learn. Uh-huh. Like, I don't think anybody does anything at their best at 23 years old. Like, yeah. His name is Michael Phelps. <laughs> <laughs> just swim really fast, you know? Yeah, yeah right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was just an angry, pissed off E4 at 23. So, you know, I, I was just like, give me the Gustav and leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. But those are the best. But, but again, those are the best moments, too, when you have all the toys and none of the, none of the extra baggage. Like, you were the guy to go yeah. make stuff happen. <laughs> and I think that's where we got towards the end of our deployment because we, we, we had some pretty, some pretty severe attrition. So by the end, like Luke and I were the only people left from our squad and no one really wanted to tell us what to do. So like just go be a Gustav team. Don't get in trouble and don't get lost. I'm like This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as uh, so you had you have the jingle truck incident. You're starting to see maybe cracks. Um how long between the jingle truck incident and the uh, the IED strike? Yeah, I, I honestly can't remember. It, it all it all blends together, but uh, I, I do remember the, the IED strike pretty good, or I, I remember pretty well. And and that was that was honestly one one of the stories of my army career that I always remember because I was sent out to help retrieve the people that were out there still after it happened. And so we're out there, and I remember this this uh, truck that got hit was full of SF dudes, and to include the medic. Well, I'm headed out there, and we have a Navy guy, and he's supposed he's a Navy OD. He's supposed to be scanning for landmines and stuff like that. And um, unfortunately, he stepped on one and blew off his leg. And so he's screaming on the ground, and there is a SF dude who just got blown up. He is army crawling across. I'm watching this go down. I'm like, I'm trying to control control the situation. My guys, we're we're minor contact, um, nothing too crazy. Minor contact. But you're still in the moment of like, holy cow, this truck just got picked up and moved like 30 yards without touching the ground, it seemed like. Um, this guy's injured over here, and this SF dude is crawling. And he gets over to this guy, and he's, all, all the Navy UD guy is screaming is, excuse my language, but he's screaming, check my dick, check my dick. And the <laughs> SF dude is flicking. He's like, it's there, bro, it's there. And I'm watching this go down. I'm like, what is going on? Like, mm. this is this this is overly intense and and yeah awesome that this guy and he's and, and the sf dude is, is puking up like this green bile stuff because he was you know his equilibrium is all messed up and whatnot oh, shit. So, yeah. mm-hmm. was that the medic that was treating him uh-huh wow and we ended up and everybody everybody survived and everything was good but it was a uh, i'm watching this i'm like holy cow that dude is like people not everybody's made that way not everybody's no, made that no. way to i'm going to go and help my buddy, even though I am hurt really bad. Was he pretty close to the truck when he hit, when he stepped on the, the IED? Uh, there, I, I don't remember quite the distance, but it was probably within on 50 yards or so. Mm. Yeah. Typical Panjway distances. 
50 right. meters <laughs> and under. Yeah. 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 Now, See, I've, been, I've been out so long, I'm using yards instead of meters anymore. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the same thing. It's like, what, yeah. two inches different? Yeah, so, Doesn't, yeah. It only matters when you start to get beyond like a thousand of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, one thing that came out, you know, and I, you know, Bales mentioned it a few times, and it always seemed kind of like, really, he's like, yeah, that was my friend, and I, the, I kind of snapped because I saw my friend lose his leg. I mean, did he have any kind of personal relationship with that EOD guy at all? You know, I, I, I can't say they're best friends by any means. I, I know they talked a lot on the base and stuff like that, but when you're with a bunch of dudes in the middle of a war zone, especially Afghanistan, I'm like. I think everybody kind of has that. You know, honestly, the Navy, Navy EOD guy and I didn't see eye to eye. I, I sometimes thought he was a little too proud of himself. Um, but when it happened, like, like it hurt. It hurt me. Sure. Like I'm like, dude, that's that's one of my dudes. Like, you know, what what the heck? That's one of my dudes. Why'd that happen? And so I don't know if that's a similar experience Bob was feeling or whatnot, but you, you develop a brotherhood. It, it, just because you have a brother, you may love your brother. You may not like your brother, but you love him. You know, and I think it may be something like that. And he, um, was where was uh, Bales during that whole IED thing? Was he on that patrol? Was he in one of the trucks? No, was he in the base? I, I, I think he was at the base, if I recall. I don't remember him being up there, but I could be wrong. Don't don't fact check. No, that, that. Yeah, I can't fine, remember yeah. exactly where he's at. <laughs> yeah, no, but, no uh, fact, no fact checking. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Oh, well, how did you how did you kind of gauge how that incident affected him after the fact? Um, he definitely um, it was a different time. There was a tree that was used as a marker for the ID. So you know, obviously, when the truck hit that got to that tree, they used it as a marker to set the ID off. Uh, at least he believed that. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it was a good theory. Sure. Um, so he had some guys remove that tree, had them hack it up, and it was like a memento of like, yes, we, we got rid of their marker, kind of like a trying to, I don't know, fill the void of something. Sure. But, um, and did you see like a whole lot of emotion going into that process for him? Was, was it? Yeah. I mean, he was, I, I don't want to, sometimes Bob was dramatic. Sure. Um. It's almost like he would do things to try and, and make everybody else feel what he was feeling. And sometimes he would try and come off very stoic of like, hey, this is happening. Sure. Um, so I don't know how much of it was, was true anger, or true emotion, or true frustration, or, or how much of it was like, hey, I want to show the stoicism to my young guys because they need to know this is important or whatnot. Honestly, like I, I – um, even on the base, like – I tried to show that there was a united front between, you know, the other squad leader, Bales and I, and, and what we we're putting out to our, our Joes was a consistent message. But uh, like he and I weren't super close. He's not somebody I would like send to check my family if I got hurt or anything like that. And we wouldn't hang out that much. Um, we would hang out just to try and keep that relationship of like, I'm in your chain of command. Um, again, we need to have a united message and stuff like that. But I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that. So were you guys roommate? Did you live in the same quarters? Did you have separate quarters? How did that work? No. So I lived in another uh, another metal conics with another team leader, squad leader guy. <laughs> kind of it, there was no like formal leadership. Like it would be like, Hey, sure. you're gonna run the guys today, this is your job, go do that. Okay, no problem. And same with the other one, the other guy, he was another E five that I roomed with. And that would that would usually be 
fails, it would just be deciding who's in charge that day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it was, and because we're with SF dudes, um, like they have only a handful of dudes typically. So they all know their role and it's very consistent where us, it's like, uh, we need some guys to run the guns on the truck. So, Hey, you guys are going to go run the guns on the truck today or Hey, we're going to go for patrol. Um, this is what you're going to do today. Whatnot. Sure. It wasn't a typical infantry. Like, you know, who dad is, you know, who the kids are and this is what you're doing for the day. Right. Right. Um, did as, so there's, there's the IED event. Um, it's what, two or three days between that and, and the, uh, the incident. I, I honestly don't remember. Dude, I, I, uh, I can't, I don't know how long it was, um, between the, uh, maybe a week. Okay. Um, I, I really don't, don't recall the, the, the time in between the incidents. Um, but it was, it was, it was soon after. And, mm-hmm. and when you, when you guys ask about like, Hey, did you see this? Did you see that? Like, you know, he definitely voiced some concerns. He voiced that he wanted to be more aggressive. He voiced that he wanted to be an infantryman and things like that and do infantry stuff and didn't feel that we were doing that. He voiced that he wanted to be promoted. Um, he was disheartened that he got passed up for promotion. Um, kind of being, we talked about like, sometimes people complain a lot <laughs> or feel that they're getting shafted. Sure. And it's like, that's just not your role. Be better next time, you know? And, but right. as a E5 telling an E6 that who's in charge of me, it's a very seasoned uh, E6 too. A very seasoned. You know, yeah. I, a lot of times I just sat back and listened and, and not thinking it was going to go anywhere. Right. Um, but I tried to talk them through things sometimes. Um, this is why we hung out the night before he did what he did. Um, you know, the, the other, squad leader and I and um, him hung out and drank a little bit of alcohol, nothing to where we're drunk or intoxicated or anything like that. But it was very much a, the, what's the morality of the guys? Like, what does the future look like? And how are we going to have a, how, how are we going to get through the next few months or whatnot? Or what does that look like? Um, and how did that kind of hangout session go? I mean, Obviously, it ended at some point. What was kind of when the last time you saw, I guess, uh, Bob before he did what he did? Yeah, so we we um, were watching a movie, talking shop, and again, it was like even looking back now, no, I know now the jingle trucks and the comments he made. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, I would, I would totally understand that now. But um, but I've heard many other people speak like that that are very successful, very mentally well and stuff like that. Um, so that there was nothing from that conversation that night that I took away of like, Oh my God, he's going to go out and do something. Um, you know, he used to, yeah, he had a saying and one saying that I told him that he needed to stop saying was he always wanted to see the pink mist because we're both snipers. And he tell me that consistently. Hey, I want to see the pink mist. And, uh, you know, I'd laugh it off or just like, Hey, like that's not something that that's not goal of life. And for me, um, and, and just to clarify the, the meaning of that is that that's a way that, you know, you have an impact. So that's, that's kind of the origin of that statement, right? When you, yes. When you're a sniper and you engage somebody and you have a direct round impact on somebody. It's not really meant to be a super gory or like, no. you know, like m- m- murder no. movie kind of phrase. It's, it's, a technique not really a technical term but it's that's it's a, like a hit confirmation obviously you don't get like a hit light or you don't get a steel target that falls down like that's how you know you have a hit 
Right. And, and really what, at the core of it, I think he just wanted, I think the core of that message was, I wish I was a sniper in a combat zone. And yeah. cause he never was, he never right. was a guy in a gun in a combat zone as a sniper. And, um, for some people, you know, being behind a gun and, and experiencing that is, is kind of their highest level of, of expertise. Um, sure. but again, that's not really a the first mission of a sniper. People don't really realize is to report battlefield information to your command. And, right. and whatnot, but and the other is just an aftermath of that. So he he was kind of warping the the meaning of that. Yes. Okay. Um, but again, like nothing from that night that I that would draw me to to be concerned about him. Um, you know, when you're when you're in Afghanistan and you're consistently in contact on your base or out or whatnot, or you're in a war zone, there is some element of I have to stay hardened to some degree. And sometimes people don't know how to balance that and and whatnot. Um, so yeah. And then he, next thing I know, I'm getting woken up at like three in the morning and saying we need 100 percent accountability and somebody's not here. And the first thing in my mind is somebody got kidnapped. I started right. like I, I immediately went and checked on my guys. Some got kidnapped. Very loose information as to as to what really happened, and we finally figure out that. Bob was not on base. And again, I'm like, holy cow, he got kidnapped. Um, and then other information started coming in. We're like, maybe he didn't get kidnapped. Maybe he decided to walk off. And this would be what, while he was off base the second time, right? Uh, yeah. Which I wouldn't know till later. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yes. And was it the ODA commander that woke you up? No, it was, and I don't know which, I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of my, one of the, one of the line level guys woke me up from what I remember. Um, yeah. Um, so kind of walk us through the process. So the guys, I mean, 3 a.m. He's still out. He's, um, always on a second trip. So what, what kind of happens in the next, you know, hour or so? So we get hundred percent accountability. Um, we start manning the gates or, or man the wall, stuff like that. Make sure everybody's got their stuff. Um, I'm kind of in and out talking to the commanding officer for the SF dudes. I'm trying to get information here and there. Information starts coming in that, yeah, Bob's out, and Bob may have done some egregious things. So you he, knew that before he came back that that was a possibility. Uh, yeah, it's kind of pieced it together because on another base, um, Afghan locals were coming in with gunshot wounds and things like that, and making allegations or, or making claims that there was, you know, soldiers out there that were shooting people. And so we it, we just started kind of piecing it together, like, holy cow. He is what we don't know what he's doing. We'll obviously start making assumptions and things like that. Um, at some point, um, the ISR above head catches glimpse of what we believe to be Bob. The commander sends myself, another squad leader, and one of the SF guys to go out to the gate and retrieve him. He comes running up and uh, he gets, I don't know, five yards from us, and I point my rifle at him because I'm. I don't know what's going through his head. I don't know if, if he's going to harm myself or the other squad leader in the SF, dude. I, I, I have no idea. I have a million questions going on. I'm trying to keep my composure of like, what the hell? Um, he starts screaming at the other squad leader, did you wrap me out? Did you wrap me out? And it's like, and I, and again, I'm trying to take all this in, trying to be mature, but I'm essentially arresting my platoon sergeant for something right um he drops all his guns thankfully and and comes in and and it's pretty i mean he's he's physically cooperative at that point and then he's dished off to somebody else they they put him somewhere to watch him and assign people to watch him and whatnot 
So uh, his my, initial reaction when you saw him, he was angry. He was mad. And then once maybe he just realized that the gig was up and then he then he became compliant. Yeah. I yeah. I think he was he looked at me when I when I put my rifle I'm I'm like I, I'm screaming, I'm like, you know, drop the guns and give shouting orders and commands and um yeah. And and he, he complied. I I truly had no idea how that was going to play out in my, you know, it was something very foreign to me. You know, I, I, again, I'd been through two deployments prior to this and pretty heavy deployment up to this, but that was just something that was just surreal. You know, just, I couldn't like, why is this happening? Why do I have to do this? You know, kind of thing. So, I mean, as you're going out to that gate with the other squad leader and the SF guy, I mean, are, are you guys, did you guys say anything to each other to like what, like, or you just like go there in silence? Like, Oh my God, what the fuck is about to happen? Kind of, I think we're, I don't remember exactly what we said, but I'm sure there was some sort of plan formula. Like, Hey, when he comes, we're going to want to make him drop his stuff or something mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, wasn't what we're, we're both still in, in shock is honestly, at some point I'm like, I'm going to wake up from this. This is a really weird dream. This is a really bad sure, dream, yeah. but I'm going to wake up from this. I'm going to fall off my bunk or something. I don't know, but, but something is going to happen. And I'm going to be like, Holy cow. But it just never happened. Never woke up. So he, he gets detained, he gets placed in, in confinement. Um, you know, obviously at this point, you know, I think that, you know, the sun's going to be coming up here soon. You know, what's the next couple of hours look like? Uh, a lot of mobility as far as like, um, scoring stuff away, um, that we, we kind of talked about, we, I, I sat my guys down in the chow hall and, and, uh, it's kind of mentioned in the other podcast, but I, I, I made some comments out of my, I don't know was again, um, I was basically telling him to stay off social media because this is a really big incident. And when you want to talk about the transition of my first tour to this tour, privates, you know, social media is really big and, and things really happening. Uh, it's fairly pe- new pe- pe- too. Yeah. People post a lot of stuff on social media. So I want to make a very impactful statement to them. Um, I don't know the verbiage I use. Clearly they, they say I use some choice words, but I assure you is no way intention to harm them. It was really to protect them because I knew this was a big thing. I knew this was a horrible big thing by that point and that for everybody's sake, we just needed to like stop, figure out what's going on and what the next move is. And I, I did not need to explain to my command why, you know, Joe Schmo is posting on Facebook that their platoon sergeant did this, that, or the other. Right. So at this point, would are you the senior NCO? Uh, no, the other squad leader is. Okay. Um, I think I – I was just a little more vocal than he was okay. in trying to help facilitate things. And what was uh, what was kind of going on between you guys and the uh, the SF team? Was like did like a wall go down? They're like, hey, you take care of your guys. This is no longer we're not like working together no, anymore. No, or no, were they, no, was was no. it still business no, as usual? No, it, it was still business. And in the you know the and the SF commander was like, he he took responsibility of all of us and was trying to just um you know give us tasks to do and same with, same with the other non-commissioned officer leadership. They're just trying to give us tasks to do to, to get things. They knew that, um, they knew that obviously big wigs are going to show up. Brass is going to show up for this. Like it's going to be like, we're going to be very inundated with a lot of command. Um, like we had a, I told people, Hey, clean up, look good, put on fresh uniform, look presentable. The most presentable you look, you know, make sure your area is presentable. Um, probably not even rational things in the sense of like, I'm just going through autopilot, that sense of still trying to take this in that, that 
my platoon sergeant did this and be there and, and give clear, concise guidance for my guys and do it appropriately. At 23 years old with a brand new kid that's at home because she was born weeks prior. Sure. Well, I, I imagine at some point the, the focus has to shift to the situation developing outside the gate. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that was another huge... I remember so so people, like hundreds of people started gathering outside the gate and they wanted, but I don't know if they got his name, but they were chanting in saying, hey, like we want the person responsible for this. They're bringing bodies by. You know, some some of the bodies, some of the bodies of the deceased, most of them were, you couldn't recover. A lot of them you couldn't recover. But I remember standing at the gate and I'm looking up and I see the guys, you know, up around the gate. I see the guys manning the turret and stuff like that, of the, of the cars up on the ramps. And I'm thinking to myself, like, one, like, what did you do to lead you to hear Dave Godwin? You know, like what decisions did you do that's led you to hear? Um, and also looking at the people across the two by four in concertina and we had like a Humvee or something. I'm like, they're just going to overrun it and this is it. And I feel horrible that I put my guys in this position by not doing something prior, by not doing more, by not being more attuned to what was going on. It sucked. Thankfully, none of that happened. I'm amazed um, that they didn't hit it. Yeah. Me like, too. Absolutely astonished. Literally yeah. by the grace of God. Like somebody was looking out for us that they didn't. Because if I was a father of a child, I I think I would, there's not much in this world I would do to um, help my child if that had happened. So what was, I mean, the security situation for you guys? I know, like you said, the, the immediate pressing thing was, holy shit, what if they if one dude were to come out and spray PKM, then it could have escalated very quickly. So I'd imagine that everybody's on edge. Everybody is, is wired for sound. And like, you're trying to process everything you've just seen that morning. You're trying to process what's at hand. Like, you know, what, how did you kind of walk, walk yourself through that situation? You know, I, I was probably pretty close to black without actually being a black, if that makes sense. You know, like, yeah. I, I was, I was, a lot of it was just mental, you know, mental muscle of like task, 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 task. You do this, you do this, you do this. And then again, sitting at that gate is when it just kind of dawned on me. Like, you know, I start, I started thinking about the families, like what my guys are going to see somebody with a gun potentially, and they're going to have to, you know, maybe have to engage that person. But that guy's here because his whole family just got wiped out by one of our guys. Like, and trying to think through that methodically and, and how we're appropriately act and things like that. It's not, it's not the typical war. Like there's the enemy we're going to close with and capture the enemy. It's like a, we truly have to make the best of this scenario and what that looks like only time will tell. And, and again, thankfully nobody, nobody had to do anything egregious. It, it, it settled down. Um, there was definitely a lot of coordination with, um, oncoming units to assist us in, in doing gate guard and in taking up duties that we had there, which very much appreciated. Um, I only stayed on the base for a day or two. They removed myself from their squad leader because they were investigating us for anything that we, you know, any misconduct that we had and stuff like that. And we obviously told them about the consumption of alcohol prior and, and uh, went through that whole song and dance and um, they didn't want to speak in with our guys because they had an investigation to do, which, which sucked. Yeah. Um, yeah. how did so that when, play out for you? I mean, was, uh, were you on calf for a while for that? Did they fly you home? No, I, mean, I was on, I was on calf for over a month in a little wooden box. I was only allowed to talk to the chaplain and my lawyer and it sucked. 
you know, and at one point, um, I saw another NCO who was in a, a sister platoon, like ACO or, or different platoon, excuse me. And uh, he starts kind of, he made a couple jokes and I, I'm like running on emotions right now. Like I have to be this presentable E5 non-commissioned officer, United States Army in Afghanistan and war zone. But man, it, the walls are coming in quick and he, you know, kind of makes a joke about it. And I'm just like, on the verge of just crumbling and breaking down. I'm like, I don't want any of this. I just, I just want to be done. And yeah, so it was, it was rough. Eventually our guys did come back to CAF and I saw them very briefly, but again, I had a gag order, so I couldn't speak to him. I couldn't say like, oh, thank God. You know, I couldn't go and give him a hug. and like, thank God. It's not that we were super close. I didn't hang out with them, but again, there's an element of responsibility that you hold on your shoulders. Sure. And uh, that whole time that you're, was it on Camp Brown? Uh, yeah, whatever the SF compound is. On yeah, calf. yeah, yep. Um, was the was that where the majority of the, the like the CID investigation was happening, or were they just kind of? I, I, I don't just kind of talk us through what that kind of experience, what that experience was like. When I when I I have no idea because I literally was assigned like this is your hutch. You'll stay here. You'll go get food. You can work out. Only talk to your lawyer and the chaplain. Hmm. And I, I really had no idea until um, his weeks later, some uh, JAG officers came and spoke to me and started going through that process and whatnot, and whatnot. And I told him, you know, everything that led up to that night and, and what happened and whatnot. And, um, I mean, there was obviously other things I saw, like when Bob came in off, like he was covered in blood, like sure, just yeah. covered in blood. And again, you're like, you don't have you don't have any information as to what he actually did, but you just know it's bad. Like, you right. know, it's horrible. Well, I mean, it, it sounds kind of morbid to say, but you don't generally get covered in blood from shooting people at a acceptable range. No, yeah. you so, you know, it's, it's, it's close. We don't need to go into to all of that, but yeah. you know, he didn't just go out, shoot people and come back. There was more to it. Right. So, no. uh, when the investigation stuff starts coming down, you, you finally get back home. You know, what was mm. the next few months to, I guess, the trial and everything like that? Like, what was that process like for you? So they, uh, in my in my command was was great with me. Um, we got back. Um, they actually sent me over to a different battalion just to, not as a punishment, but as a like, hey, this is something egregious. We just got to put you with people that you don't know so you don't feel like obligated to give detail. You don't, you know, because it's, it's a criminal investigation that has to be preserved to its full extent, you know. And um, so they put me with uh, – they put me in the, this company that was um, overseeing people getting chaptered out of the Army. So I was an NCO that had to, like, drive them around, tame their appointments, help chapter them out of the Army. And that sucked Oof. too. Yeah, that sucks. You know, and I was I – was, again, I had a brand-new kid at home and young wife. And I'm like, I am just checked out in, in, in a lot of ways and just like – trying to find which way is up and can mm-hmm. keep my composure and um but the the staff that was you know back there was great they they treat me really well and and whatnot but it was it was definitely a transition that's for sure mm-hmm. and so i mean that the trial happened about was like august of uh 12 i think is when the no no it was after 13. that 13 yeah yeah 13 um, how did, how, what was that like to kind of, were you involved? Were you, did you have to speak? How did that go? So I, um, I don't remember if it's for the trial itself or if it was for, uh, like a preliminary hearing, 
if I end up flying up to uh, prior to that, prior to the actual trial, I flew up to Washington, had a speaking preliminary hearing, and and I don't know if Bob was holding out on me to not say anything. Um, I was pissed. Like I, of course, I'm angry with Bob Bales, um, but I get up there to speak. You know, I think it was a prelim hearing, um, and I tell him, you know, my observations and what led up to to that night and what I observed that night or next morning. And it was the weirdest thing. He, you know, it went through. Um, they called me back for the trial. I made it up there, but never had to speak in the actual trial itself. Um, because he pled guilty, right? Because he pled guilty to avoid the death penalty and and whatnot. And, yeah. And have you ever heard anything else from him since then? Has he ever reached no. out? No, no, and no. I don't know if he ever will. I don't know if I ever will. You know, I I hold a lot of anger for Bob Bales for yeah putting us all in that situation. Um, I I held on to a lot of grief for not being better as a squalor to thwart that for a long time. Um, I I definitely I felt bad because. Most of those guys underneath me, this is this was their deployment. They joined the army. They wanted to deploy. They wanted to show their country. You know, they care. Like, and that's ultimately what we all want to do. And to be tainted by this, like, that sucks. Like, you know, they don't. They have their, their deployment will be tainted for a long forever. So, uh, did you did you see any repercussions from just being associated with this whole? tragedy in your own career like did you, when you went to promotion boards or something like that did did it come up or were you just so done that you wanted to get out of the military yeah so i got i got demoted to being from e5 to e4 and i was getting ready to be promoted e6 when i was in e5 i was literally just waiting on the first rnco to show up to do the promotional process um, but since we're so far removed it, it was delayed so i was still technically in e5 got promoted to e4 um like i said my command was great I kept with it. They said, hey, we want to promote you again back to E5. Um, but I didn't have your retainability. I, I was like, look, I, I need a break. I got out, um, got a job immediately, um, decided to join the Colorado National Guard when I moved back. Um, was in the Colorado National Guard, got promoted within that back to E5 and did some more schools and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, I never – I never faced any legal issues other than getting an Article 15 being demoted. But, again, I – I, I understood I consumed alcohol overseas, which you can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but all in all, I, I was treated fairly. Absolutely. That's good. The, okay. the worst, so I go ahead. I say the worst part was um, when I was back on, on rear duty doing that, we also were in charge of help facilitating some of the funerals from the soldiers that did die over there. Mm-hmm. And I won't mem- mention his name, but I remember helping kind of put some stuff together for it. And I'm sitting in the back. I didn't, I knew him. Like, I, I knew who he was. But we weren't close. Um, I'm sitting in the back of this room. And, like, they're going through his, you know, through the funeral or whatever. And I just lose it in the back of the room. Because I'm like, you piece of crap. You're here. And everybody's still over in Afghanistan because you made a really poor choice, Dave. And that, that was probably the thing that brought me down the most. It's feeling this sense of I, I got out of it easy compared to other people. Yeah, and that, and that was a rough year for 2ID. It was. Yeah. They got hit pretty hard. Um, and I'm, I don't know if you knew this, but we were we were attached to 2ID. So I didn't. We, we were at Spurwangar. Um, we, were, we were a third ID company, but we were actually attached to uh, 123 Infantry. Okay. Um, so we, 
I don't know. I I I wore the Indian patch throughout my career because I had such a um, connection to particularly to one two three, but to two ID in whole in in all. Yeah. It, well, that second ID third brigade has a lot of history. They did a lot of a lot of good stuff throughout this war. Um, they're had a lot of impact in those countries or in Iraq. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Dave, I mean, we kind of end these things with uh, kind of a chance for you to take take the stage, take the platform to say whatever it is you want to say. And before you do that, I want to preemptively thank you um, for, for coming on and telling your story because, I, and I know it wasn't easy to do. Um, so I, I'll thank you again at the end because we always do. But I wanted to, before you said whatever you want to say, we really appreciate uh, you sharing what you've shared so far. So whatever we haven't mentioned, whatever we haven't talked about or whatever's on your mind, uh, kind of the floor is yours. I appreciate that. No, I just, uh, you know, this whole podcast, I mean, come on this podcast came about because uh, obviously some other gentlemen were on prior to me and they, they had a very skewed um, things. Uh, some information wasn't accurate. You know, they, they believe that there was other participants in this event, which absolutely were not. You know, when they talk about um, multiple people exiting the gate in Afghani saw that, that's, that's inaccurate. There's never, nobody ever reported that. Um, they, they felt that I got uh, demoted and kicked out of the army, which just was inaccurate as well. Um, and I think a lot of it is going back to the, their deployment was tainted. This was their deployment, and I I have empathy for that. Um, I, I hope that this message gets out to them and realize that, like, I'm sorry that um, this happened, that I wasn't a better squad leader at the time to maybe prevent in some way, and I don't know what even that would look like, but prevent Bob Bales from doing that or, you know, knowing what you know now is, is, is key, I guess. But, uh, no, I, I hope they're all doing well and have, have moved on in their life and have some kind of closure with it. Um, man, if there's a few of you guys that have it, have my number, if you guys have any more questions, I'd, I'd love to sit down and talk with you more about it, but that's about all I got. Yeah, well, I, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us another perspective on this very, very complex little moment in uh, in Panjway history. So, yeah. you know, it, it's good to get different angles so that we can attempt to provide a fuller story on the whole chaos that was that particular event. So, yeah, you know, just to reflect what Curtis said, thanks for coming on and appreciate you trusting us to, you know, let you tell your story. And we appreciate you coming on and actually, you know, doing it, man. I hope it was beneficial for, for everybody involved in some way. Yep. I appreciate you guys. Yeah. It's our pleasure. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of season three of the Panjway podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.